Hello and welcome to this series three, episode six of Out with Susie Ruffle. I had lots of messages about last week's show with the brilliant Cameron Esposito. I'm delighted so many of you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for getting in touch. Had lots of messages from people outside of the UK in Europe, which is very exciting that the podcast is reaching people further afield. So hello to you if you're a new person that's joining. Um, and also hello to those of you that have been listening since F1. I'm delighted uh, that you're listening. I'm delighted you're here with me. And uh, thank you very much for your support. We've got another brilliant episode today, one that I thoroughly enjoyed. I always say that, but I thoroughly enjoy all of them. And I'm really excited to say we've got loads more episodes coming up this series. We're going to do even more this series, we think. And I'm currently reaching out to lots of different people to come on the show. I've got loads of suggestions from you guys, which I really appreciate. As always, all I can really do is reach out and ask if someone wants to come on the show. Sometimes people don't respond, sometimes they do. Sometimes they come back and say, no thanks, I don't really like talking about myself um, as much as you do, obviously. <laughs> yes, I've made a living out of it. Um, but I am reaching out to lots of people and hopefully we'll have about oof, maybe 15 episodes this series if I can get that many interviews in the bag. So hopefully lots more interesting chats to keep you company over the next 10 weeks. Um, as always, let's have some listener emails. I'm always delighted to share them. And it seems that so many of you really enjoy this part of the show. Here we go. Dear Susie, I hope you're doing well. Apologies for the weird handle of my email address. I'm writing from my childhood email because I have a completely irrational fear that my main email address, in brackets, work, will be read. Anyway, like so many others, I've been listening to your podcast on my walks, which has helped me lose half a stone and then immediately gain it back. But thank you for that short and sweet time of being lighter. I've been thinking about writing to you, but I felt that after listening to the last podcast episode, I really had to, mostly because I would categorise it as the American episode, which featured Cameron Esposito and an email from the DC Boston area. Before I get to the bit about me, I just wanted to quickly say that Cameron as a person is amazing and I will now dive into her work. Side tangent on that point, you're a brilliant comedian and are so great. Your stand-up is so funny and is ridiculously good at cheering me up. Thank you very much. I'm delighted about that. I'm a listener from California who came out to two friends around February 2021 after warning drug use and LSD trip the night before. I called them the next day and came out. I couldn't even use the word lesbian. Somehow the extra syllable made saying it completely impossible, so I had to mumble the word gay before we were able to move on with lots of questions and advice. Since then, I haven't told anyone else apart from you now. One of those friends, my pal living in Glasgow, recommended your podcast and it's been insanely helpful in me coming to terms with a lot of myself. You're incredibly good at interviewing and I hope that one day you get your own talk show. I would watch that for sure. Well, you know that's my dream. Thanks for saying that. I've never really had any queer role models in my life to look up to growing up. And having someone talk through a podcast really does feel like two people are there for you. Even though we are all in shared isolation, this is the first in my life where I've actively been seeking out queer content and had someone to talk to me about how I'm feeling. I find myself resonating so much with your podcast, with you and the guests, that I often come home weeping or am just overcome with happiness. I'm coming to terms with a lot of trauma that I've experienced, but I think now that I'm in a point in my life where I'm ready to overcome my own internalised homophobia. Or maybe not. To be perfectly honest with you, it all seems so scary and frightening. Practically everything I've ever read or listened to say that it's so much better once you've come out. But since I've repressed it for so much of my life, the point that I get to happiness seems impossible. I don't mean for this to sound like a downer email, but that's what's currently going on in my head. 
Laura Checkley's episode put it very well when she said that she thought she'd end up alone. That's how I thought I would end up, or in a loveless relationship with a man. Because I've only told two, now three, people, I still contemplate those two options as my future. I really hope that I'm able to overcome this bit in my life, because if I do end up alone or in a loveless relationship, I think I will do my authentic self a huge disservice, which is putting it so lightly, but I don't want to sound too intense. And it's so depressing a life to live. I've had to hide a lot of myself from myself and spent most of my life in denial. I don't know where life will take me, but at least I took one step. This has been really sad and I don't mean to be such a downer. I would like to talk about that Indian takeaway you had. I'm so glad that you liked it. It sounded like a great place to get dinner. I might have an Indian takeaway tonight. Um, that's a reference to last week's episode. Quick side note, ditto to the touring bit. If you ever come to Los Angeles, I would totally buy a ticket to your show. Maybe two. And I do a good job at coming out and being good at stuff. Anyway, I want to end on an all the best standard email signature, but I want to quickly say that you're an inspiring person. I'm really not sure about that, but thank you. And although I'm a complete stranger danger and a new listener, I feel like you're changing my life in a positive way and providing an environment where I don't feel alone or scared, even if it's just for a short walk around the block. Um, I'm not going to share your name because you're yet to come out to, to lots more people and I, you haven't said whether you want me to share it or not. So I'm going to choose not to. But thank you so much for your email. Um, I know a conversation that comes up all the time is it gets better, it gets better, it gets better. But I think sometimes when you're still in the midst of working out exactly who you are and how much of that you want to share and if you feel like people are going to respond in a bad way and you might lose relationships with people in your family or in your friendship group, it's really hard to see that it gets better moment. And I know that I felt like that so much, you know, th those years ago when I came out. I think like we've said this so many times on the show, but like doing things at your own time, and I think admitting stuff to yourself is the first step to living that authentic life. And I I hope so much for you that you you get to live that authentic life. And I'm sure you will. And you get to meet someone that, that brings you joy. Uh, I really hope so, if that's what you want. Okay, let's move on to another email. Now, I wasn't sure about sharing this one, but I think it's, I think it's really important to share stuff about mental health and... Um, and about how tricky that can be. And I think certainly part of the LGBTQIA plus community, it's something, it's something that a lot of us have struggled with. You know, it's certainly stuff that we've shared on the podcast before. And I think that it's important to, um, you know, to show the light and the dark and how challenging those moments can be and how and what an impact being queer can have on your mental health. So I am going to share this one, but I'm going to give a little warning at the top. This email from one of our brilliant listeners does go to a few dark places there's some suicide uh, references and self-harm and there's a brief reference to a child sexual abuse um, and it talks quite a lot about mental health if you're in a place right now where you feel like you can't listen to this or if um Maybe, maybe you, you never feel like you can listen to something like this that's totally fine if you want to skip forward a minute or so then you can get straight to the interview this week. But um, I thought this was very brave of someone to share and so I am going to share it. Dear Susie, I hope you're doing well. First of all, I want to thank you for creating an invaluable resource to our community. I know people will benefit from this podcast for years to come. I fell in love with like-minded friends during lockdown. That is a podcast that I do with my dear friend, Tom Allen. And if you haven't listened to Tom's episode, it's a really good one, it's in series one. Okay, back to the email. I'm a gay man who's always found a deep community and friendship among lesbian and bi women. So it gives me great joy to see a gay boy, gay girl, bestie representation that I've always been searching for. 
So when I heard about Out With Susie Ruffle, I just knew I had to give it a try. And of course, I wasn't disappointed. You interview your guests with such warm, good humour and empathy. It's a pleasure to listen to you at work. Well, thanks for saying that. I'm still learning a lot, but I appreciate that. So anyway, I'm writing to you today because I want to share my story. I've never heard of a coming out story quite like it. And the older I get, the more I have this burning desire to get it off my chest. The most important people in my life already know this, but I want to share it more widely. I've been wanting to write to you for months, but it's taken a lot of courage. This story is painful and the act of telling it can really take it out of me. However, I'm going to power through regardless. I'm not sure where to start, but I'll start by saying that when I heard you talking about your own experiences of OCD with Amru Al-Khadi, it made me feel empowered to come forward. This is because my coming out story is inextricably linked to my experience of having severe OCD. I can't talk about one without talking about the other. I'm going to warn you in advance. This account goes to some dark places. I touch upon passive suicidal thoughts, self-harm, and make a brief reference to childhood sexual abuse. I'll start at the beginning. I realised I was grey over the Christmas holidays in 2000. I was 10 going on 11. I had an erection during a documentary about gay poet Orpheus, and I knew in that moment that I was gay. At first, I was shocked and frightened, but I quickly got over these feelings and came to take a quiet pride in being gay. Of course, Section 28 was still in place, but representation on TV was starting to pick up in the early noughties, and it made all the difference in the world to me. I used to devour sitcoms with gay and bi characters like Will and Grace, Coupling, Book Club, etc. And when I saw Priscilla late one Saturday night, it was a revelation. I also had a very queer circle of friends, which helped a lot. All this meant that I never really struggled with an internalised homophobia like many of your guests, or the man who I later came to marry. Quite the opposite, in fact. My sexuality gave me strength and a strong sense of identity. Up until the age of 16, I was very happy in a self-contained sort of way. I was out to a few trusted friends, and I enjoyed pottering around listening to music and reading books. I had no idea what lay ahead, and no idea that my gay identity would become fractured and my mental health would be run ragged by an illness I didn't even know existed. Over the summer holidays in 2006, I saw a documentary about a man with a brain tumour. It unlocked something in him and he started abusing his stepdaughter. I was so deeply scarred and traumatised by this documentary that my life changed overnight, and I mean that literally. I remember waking up the very next day feeling convinced that, despite being a raging homosexual, I too had latent feelings towards young girls. From that moment on, I was not the same happy person I had just been days before. My life became dominated by fear. I started getting severe panic attacks in school and out in public, and I had recurring nightmares almost every night of the week. At that time, I had no way of knowing what I was experiencing was an OCD. I thought that OCD was about compulsive cleaning because that's what I'd seen on TV. I had no idea that OCD could take form of obsessive thoughts about doing, or in my case, being something completely alien towards your own nature. I've often asked myself why my thoughts centred around paedophilia. I think it might be because a couple of years prior a classmate confided in me that she was being molested and made me swear not to tell anyone. So there I was, at the tender and formative age, having to navigate a life with horrific mental illness, unaware that I even had one. I thought there was something fundamentally wrong with me. I was so frightened that I began to dabble in self-harm and used to fall asleep praying that I would never wake up. At the same time I became plagued by obsessive thoughts, I started to notice guys less and less. As an adult, I know that I'm in, when I'm in a state of heightened anxiety, my sex drive is affected and feeling out of touch with my sexuality is a natural consequence of that. But as a teenager, I did not understand this about myself and I took this as evidence that my thoughts were somehow grounded in reality. I did everything I could to fix myself. I started using gay porn compulsively. I threw myself into gaydar meets at 17 before I was really ready for that sort of thing. 
I wanted to feel like myself again because it felt like my sexuality, the thing that had given me strength, was slipping away from me. 17 was also the age that I came out. I thought it would make me more secure in my identity to come out, but it made me feel so much worse. I was in a state of turmoil with my identity that it just felt like a lie. Coming out to my mum was particularly painful. I had to deal with the stuff other gays had had to contend with, i.e. my mum grieving for a future she'd envisioned for me and worried that I'd live a sad and lonely life, while at the same time feeling like a fraud. Over a decade later, I know I was telling the truth all along. It took me seven years to find myself. It never ceases to amaze me that I managed to keep it together under such immense pressure. I had many breakdowns and my family begged me to tell them what the matter was, but I never could. Age 21, during a visit to a sexual health clinic, I found the courage to tell a health worker what I was going through. He quickly organised for me to see the on-site psychologist who suggested what I was experiencing was OCD. At the time, I didn't believe her because I'd so internalised the idea that there was something deeply wrong with me. It took two years for me to seek out professional help again, but that's exactly what I did. I moved home to Wales after university and I couldn't drive, so once a month my mum would drive me to the hospital where I would see my therapist. It was only last year that I found the strength to tell my mum what those sessions were about. Anyway, those sessions changed my life forever. My therapist helped me to see that my thoughts bore no relation to reality, and after a year of therapy it was like I'd been reborn. It felt like springtime after a long and punishing winter. Suddenly I was noticing men again. Suddenly I was feeling things I hadn't felt since I was a teenager. Now I'm in my 30s and I'm married to a wonderful man who knows all about my past and accepts me just the way I am. He too has had his own struggles with OCD so he knows what it's like, although his OCD is different to mine. I use my experience of trauma every day in my voluntary sector job, supporting vulnerable older adults, and it's given me an insight into the hardship that I'm not sure I would have otherwise. I also use it in my creative writing. This letter might be too long to share with your listeners. I'll completely understand if that's the case, but if you do share it, you can call me Eric. All the very best. I thought it took such courage to write that, and thank you, Eric, for for sharing it. I think, it, I mean, what a, what a difficult thing to go through, and I have an understanding of this because a, a dear, dear friend of mine has a similar type of OCD. And I think talking about it must be very, very difficult, but I think it's very, very brave. And I'm so pleased that you've found happiness now and that you're in a much, much better place. Um, Eric and I had a little bit of back and forth after that email and it was a real pleasure to, uh, to chat to him. Okay, as promised, let's get on now with today's episode. I think this is a really brilliant episode. I absolutely love Scott Mills. I think he's brilliant I think he's such a wonderful broadcaster and you're here he's sort of been a soundtrack to me growing up from quite a young age I really hope you enjoy this episode as ever if you want to get in touch please do the email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com thank you for all of those that got in touch this week I really appreciate it Um, let's go to that conversation with the brilliant Scott Mills Scott Mills is an award-winning DJ and a much-loved broadcaster. In fact, his voice is a staple of British radio. His shows are always funny, warm and friendly. In fact, so friendly that after years and years of listening to him, it feels like I really know him. He's also responsible for my favourite ever radio feature, Innuendo Bingo, which has seen the likes of Lady Gaga, Hugh Jackman and Carly Minogue all getting involved. He also created the award-winning documentary World's Worst Place to be Gay. You might have seen him on Children in Need, Nevermind the Buzzcocks, or Strictly Come Dancing. I'm delighted to have him on the show today. In fact, he's such a great interviewer, I'll admit I'm a little bit nervous for today's chat. Welcome to the show, Scott. 
no, don't be nervous. It's really weird you say that because I'm actually quite a, um, like a shy person, right? So I was really looking forward to this. But at the same time, I had that slight fear of like, oh, my God, she's a very good comedian. I'm really scared. I don't know why I get that. But I, get, I have a funny thing around comedians, not in a bad way, but just in a... They are always going to, like, they're really funny and also extremely intelligent. I don't know. Um, I, had that, <laughs> I had the fear, like, when I first went on, um, never mind the Buzzcocks, it was terrifying. But you're sort of, obviously what stand-ups do is live, and when you record shows it's live, but because of having, I mean, you've been on the radio for, like, 20 years? Yeah, more. Do you get nervous for shows, or is it just so second nature to you no because i'm in complete control and i think that's what it is and that's my absolute comfort zone so no i weirdly don't but um anything where it's like uh, a panel or anything like that i do get the fear and it's not it's not because people are horrible everyone is very very lovely but it's just that thing i don't know i think i'm slightly in awe of people that can do comedy actually I think that's what it is. It's not a. It, it's actually a respect thing where I get a bit like, Oof. Don't, <laughs> I don't know what. Don't. I tell what it is. It's all misplaced confidence. <laughs> I know. I think it is because then I meet people backstage and I'm like, oh, actually, they're as terrified as me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and they're weird. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're a bit weird. So am I. That's fine. They didn't have any friends at school, and that's why they're absolutely <laughs> desperate to make strangers laugh. And here we all are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you grew up in East Lee. I did, yeah, in Hampshire. Yeah, because I'm from Portsmouth. That means that we're not supposed to like each other. Do you know that whole Southampton-Portsmouth oh, yeah. rival thing, which I've never got? Okay, let's let's end the record now. Thanks, Scott. Cheers then. Oh, Bye-bye. Yeah, Cheers. It. Thanks. I hate you. <laughs> I don't understand it because I remember once um, I needed my roof done in my house. It was leaking and the builders were from Portsmouth and they turned up and they were like, Southampton and gave me real beef for it. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't really have that thing. So yeah. I don't. But yeah, I'm from um, like a, East Lee's like a little place in Hampshire, kind of near Southampton. And that's where I, yeah, that's where I grew up. And that means that your first radio job was on Power FM. It was. Do you remember Power FM? Yeah, I used to listen to Power FM <laughs> yes. when I was growing up. Yeah. The sound of the South Coast. Yes, it really was. It was weirdly um, a really popular radio station, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it was kind of a bit like Radio 1, like that music. Mm-hmm. But at the time on the South Coast, it was like being on Power FM was quite the thing. I can imagine. And it all came from like a little industrial estate in the Sedgensworth in Fairham, near Hedge End. And, um, near the big Marks and Spencers? Near the massive <laughs> M&S and Sainsbury's, actually. And recently, Susie, let me tell you, a drive through Costa. Oh, whoa. Brand new. Uh, anyway, so I was really lucky because I mean, I was weird where I knew I wanted to do radio from, I think, the eight, since I can remember, like, the age of eight. By the time I was 12, I was knocking on the door of, like, Hospital Radio Southampton, asking if I can just come and watch. And then I remember um, writing to Power FM when I was about 15 and going please can I come in and I'll just do it for nothing and I'll make tea and blah, blah, blah. Like the old-fashioned way of doing things. And everyone's like, well, that doesn't work anymore. It really does. Just make yourself, like, available. Yeah. They said no, but eventually they were like, yeah, just come in and be around. And I loved it so much. And then when I was 16, I was really lucky because it was the summer and loads of DJs went on holiday. So they were like, do you fancy a go? And I was like, all right then. And it just went from there. And so did you learn how to, like, do you call it drive the board? Is that how you... Yeah, drive the desk, yeah. The desk. Well, thing is, right, if you, if you think about it, like, even though I wasn't really allowed to do anything, I've been watching people do it since I was 12, 
So I would like literally go to hospital radio every Tuesday night. My mum would take me when I was 12. I must have looked quite weird because it was a 12-year-old in the corner just watching, <laughs> just staring. But I remember um, going in there and just watching people driving the desk, like, you know, which is playing the songs in and yep. chatting. And, and I absolutely soaked it up. And I was doing that every week, like just watching and learning, really. So in hospital radio, is it like, oh, shout out to Gloria on D Ward, who's just had a hysterectomy? It's exactly that. It's exactly that. <laughs> now, I was actually, they gave me like, eventually they gave me like a little spot on a Tuesday night. And I used to read out the charts, ironic. Yeah. Um, and I do have one recording of that. And it's just me going, and here's number one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, hospital radio, it's kind of, it still exists. But back then was a real way of like if you wanted to i guess it's now been replaced a bit by i mean it still exists and it's still great it still does great things for the hospital that it serves but i guess that people use other ways of getting into the business now like internet radio like this that anyone can start a podcast and get their voice heard it's so much easier in a way to to be able to just make stuff or Mm -hmm. do stuff um, but back then it was the way in really like if you wanted to get into this business so I used to just go in there and watch and learn and then by the time I was 16 I was doing overnights one till six on uh, on Power FM and all the other stations it was like four stations it was on but I was I don't know whether this would be allowed now but I literally was in the building on my own really mm, and it was just like it was a classic industrial estate it was like in the middle of nowhere there was like a tire shop next to it and the the guy who was on before me he used to leave at like 10 past one and i'd be like All right, bye then and i'd be on air i mean it, actually they gave me it thinking about it now i was 16 they gave that's quite a lot of responsibility yeah i could have said you anything. didn't realize how much responsibility you had i didn't at the time i was just like so grateful i'm like oh my god i'm on air somewhere but yeah and then he would leave and then I'd be on my own until about 10 to 6 in the morning. I did that for two years. But a great experience. So when you say you were sort of eight and you decided that you wanted to do radio, mm. were you sort of at home doing sort of what I was doing, which was holding down play and record and then going, that was the Spice Girls. Up next, we've got... Exactly that. So... It- it's weird for my mum now, you see, because um, when I was eight, maybe even a bit younger, I literally had two tape players in my room, but I would be, she was my only audience and she was like next door, but I was pretending to do the charts on Radio 1 and that's freaky for my mum now. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd be like, but I totally, when I was eight, totally believed that I was doing the charts on Radio 1 from my room and it was just... I mean, I didn't even have a mic. I was literally just speaking out loud. That's what I was doing when I was eight. Other people were playing with their friends. So what kind of child were you? Really um, quite very shy, actually. But I find that the case with a lot of radio presenters. I think people expect them to be really extrovert and like, you know, the fun guy at the party. And, and I think like I am that to a certain extent, but... Back then, I was really painfully shy. And, and since doing this, and, and especially, at, you know, at Radio 1 level, meeting people... For example, um, when I first joined Radio 1, I met Joe Wiley. And I thought she hated me for ages. Uh, but she's flipping lovely, like the loveliest. But for ages, because we were both shy, it just didn't work. 
So she was shy, I was shy, and I was like, oh, God, she hates me, oh, God. Uh, but actually, she was just terrified to talk. <laughs> and so was I, because it was Joe Wiley. <laughs> That's interesting because it's so... The thing is with great radio is it does feel like you're just being spoken to. Yeah. You know, it it, it just feels like a conversation. That's why when... It, it was lovely to come on uh, your Five Live show because yeah. I feel like I know you yeah a lot of people say that you know yeah especially as like a touring comic going around the country your show is on around the time that you'd leave I guess and so yeah. you'd go and, and you know it's the same with I've got the same thing like when I met Sarah Cox and different people like that where you go yeah. oh you know because certainly before I was sort of listening to podcasts or on the road by yourself yes. you really feel like you you know the features you know yeah, what's exactly. coming up and next it's quite- do you know, but that's what I kind of, that's what I loved about radio. I felt that um, when I was listening to it growing up and wanting to be on it, it's actually a very, it's quite a personal medium, much more so than television. And and people don't generally, apart from if you're in a, uh, you know, in a workplace, listening to the radio is, is, is quite a solitary exercise generally. You don't, you don't, not since the war have people gathered around the radio to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you do get to feel, I think, um, that you know that person. I mean, this is an interesting thing. You can do radio, and there's a lot of it about, and I certainly did this when I was younger, of, that was Ariana Grande, and coming up next, it's Sam Smith, and the weather is cloudy, and it's 10.23, and there's plenty of that radio where, like, actually, you it's really, it sounds great but you don't know anything about that person. It's very kind of bam, 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 and it's personality-less. And I did that radio for 10 years because I was, once again, too scared to be myself on the radio because I think it once you relax and know that it's fine, then you're good, and I can do that now. Mm-hmm. But even if you hear me, like, early doors on Radio 1, like when I was first on, it all sounds fine. But you could get through a whole show and be like, mm, I, it was just bland. And I did loads of commercial radio. I worked, when after I worked at Parafem, I went to Bristol for two years and worked on radio there. Then I went to Manchester for two years and then I came to London. But And I was doing perfectly fine radio. It was all good. I told you exactly what the time and the weather was. <laughs> but was I me on the radio? No. And I actually believe that I learned that while... I've been at Radio 1. And when you say about, you know, people gathering around the radio in wartime, it's quite interesting because I feel like, because I've been listening to a radio a lot at the moment, it's always on in our house, and it feels like people are needing the radio more at the moment since we've been in lockdown, since people are sort of, you know, people, when people get in touch with the show, I was about to say right into the shows, I don't think that happens anymore, when people tweet the (laughs) shows. sometimes. Yeah, Yeah. uh, but I think that so many people have found even more so that connection to presenters because if they're by themselves I think so the thing is what we do it's not it's certainly not radio 4 it's very it's very light and it's very fluffy and it's very actually throwaway entertainment but and I sometimes forget this and I've realized it because this has not been a normal time that people it really becomes part of their routine and also it's recently been really appreciated in time in terms of like, like the messages that we've been getting through this whole thing actually makes you realize because I think after a while you go in and do it every day and you're like and believe me it's the best job in the world it's I laugh so much it's so much fun and I still love it but you can come home and go well that didn't really change anyone's life today 
I guess uh, maybe a bit like um, if you go on stage sometimes, it's kind of like, yeah, another show done. And um, I'm not a big head. So I, I don't think, well, that's uh, that's certainly brightened up someone's day. I just don't. But it really does. And I've really noticed um, the messages that have been coming in have, have been so many of like, you're getting us through this. Thanks so much. And, and radio, I totally think, has really come into its own more than ever in this time more than I would ever realise. Yeah, I think so too. I, I mean, I know that we've had it on in the house so much more. You know, wake up, get Zoe Ball on. Yeah, you know, exactly. And have it, you know, and you go, oh, I know Zoe. I know, I know right. Scott in the afternoon. There we are. And I think it's, it's that type of radio that people kind of been craving recently because it's friendly, it's warm, and it's a distraction. And also it's current. And it's current, yeah. You know, you can listen to a podcast and go, well, I know this was recorded two years ago. Yeah, it's now, which I like. And I kind of, yeah, I want it to reference what we're living through. It's very easy to think of what you do and as kind of like, you know, lightweight and fluffy, and it is that. But also that is what people have liked about it recently. There's a thing of live radio of like a bit like we're all in this together and we'll get through it. And... I've been very mindful of that people are having a shit time mm-hmm. and it's kind of, you know, we're not changing the world, but it's really like a happy place to come for a few hours. Yeah. And um, just to even be able to do that at the moment, it just, I feel really lucky. Like I know I wake up, literally I wake up every day and go, fuck, I'm, I'm radio one. This is amazing. Like uh, it's the job that I wanted since I was eight. It's a bit like when you are really young and you go, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want a spaceman. Like I've got that job, you know, I've got yeah. the job that I'd never thought I would have. So I've always been grateful, but more recently it's blowing my mind. It's, uh, and, and you're right. It is the immediacy and it's now and it's reactive to what's happening. And it's also a happy place. And you're saying it doesn't change the world, but it's changing people's day. It is. And and that's what I didn't realise that so much. I mean, I wish I had some of the messages here with me now because um, some of them are really emotional, you know. Yeah, and, I bet. Um, and, it, and like I said, it's very easy to just um, think sometimes, actually, all I'm really doing is giving you a bit of a laugh and playing Ariana Grande again. But to 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 a lot of people, it, it feels more than that at the moment because it's familiar and a lot of people are on their own mm-hmm. and they can't see even partners or yeah. family or it's such a... Like, I really hope so, but like we won't see a time like this again where everyone is... is there's so many people isolated. Yeah, totally. Not just isolating, but isolated because they can't have people around the house or they're, and they're working from home. And it, it is a, a friendly, happy distraction. And I, oh, I think it's so important. I mean, we found from making this show yeah. is, you know, I just wanted to make a chat show, basically. And yeah. I wanted to put out something that was really positive about the sort of queer experience where, you know, because I knew that when I was growing up, I mean, I don't know what it was like in East Lee, but there wasn't much of a queer hub. <laughs> Surprisingly, there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I just knew that if there was something that was sort of like, oh, here's some people and we've all got these nice successful lives and we've got friends and we have ups and downs and but we've got yeah. the sort of, you know, the life that I didn't really know I could have growing up. And exactly. we found, you know, making this, certainly during a pandemic, the messages, like you say, that we receive is just, you know, so like we get 
get I got one last week from someone that's a nurse who's like listens on the way to her shift and like it was just yeah. I mean it brought me to tears I was just so delighted that I could be a bit of relief yeah exactly and how great is that I mean it's like, amazing yeah like I never thought that you know if flashback to eight-year-old me pretending to be on radio one I never thought that I would it didn't even cross my mind that you would get messages like that or it just didn't it even when I started doing radio you wouldn't think that you could change someone's day like that you just I it just wouldn't cross your mind yeah it's amazing and so that eight-year-old you were you sort of earlier you said instead of being out and playing with friends or something along those lines you said you were quite shy but was the radio like your friend almost like I'm going to go and practice this thing well I I think I've worked this out now of why I loved it so much I think it was my way of being able to talk to loads of people without actually having to meet them right okay (laughs) Uh, because anxiety Um, and I still get that a little bit now like if it's new people I'm and like I said, you'll find this with a load of radio presenters or people that do this kind of job. Actually can be quite shy at first. And um, I just think, I don't know, it was just really romantic thing in my head of like, oh my God, you can literally sit in this little box and speak to thousands of people and, and play great music and, you know, find out what's happening in their day. And I, it just really appealed to me. And I remember listening to Radio 1 and also to Parafem, like when I was trying to get into it and thinking that is the dream job however here's here's another confidence thing I actually thought as much as I wanted to do it I had in my head probably around the big old age of 11 I thought to myself oh well I won't ever have the confidence to to be an actual presenter so I'd kind of I was already looking into like being an engineer or being behind the scenes or being like a technical person or a producer because I didn't think that I would be able to do it. And you saying about sort of being anxious or being really shy, did that have anything to do with you realising that you were gay? Did it, Um, was it linked at all, do you think? I don't know. I think, like you say, um, really not many outlets in, in our in our area yeah uh, or probably actually for me anywhere back mm-hmm. then particularly unless I'd suddenly like move to London at the yeah. age of 12 um, but uh, yeah I think so I think that I, I see I never really struggled with my sexuality particularly I mean there was a time where um, I think I was probably 15 where I had the chat with mum and she was like I know. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> right. Yeah. They always know don't they? They yeah, don't always absolutely. know but they know often they know and uh, I was all upset about it and she was like it's absolutely fine I think my dad had a slight slightly harder time getting his head around it but fine like absolutely fine but it, it was a classic dad in the 80s of like oh, <laughs> this right. is new yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, but you know absolutely fine but I was quite lucky as well that um the hospital radio so with the hospital radio what you normally get is like you get an old guard and then there's like the young people. So the old guard have run it since time began and they're all about <laughs> 70 and they're on the committee and it's yeah. very like that. It's a bit like um, parish council vibes, you know? Right, yep, yep, yep. Was Jackie Weaver there? Jackie, it's Jackie at the top, you know? It's, it, on, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, it's hospital radio. And then, but you do have like a raft of young people who just want to be on the radio. And so I was really lucky when I was even like, I would say, yeah, when I was 12, 13, 14, and I was going there every week, I was part of, like, the young crew who'd go in on, like, a Tuesday and a Sunday, I think it was. 
and actually um some of those guys were gay and absolutely even then like really fine with it Mm -hmm. so i was super lucky that i met these people then and i'm still friends with them now where that i was like actually this is gonna be fine this is normal (laughs) you know yeah this is normal and it was it was normalized to me from such a young age but actually that's why going to the radio was also really important to me because i was like one i want to do the radio and two there's people there who i really like who are like me Mm -hmm. so i was so lucky to have that at that age because i definitely didn't have it at school no what was school like um it was fine it went without incident. I, I, I was never um, out really yeah. at all, but I just what it just wasn't a conversation. But I, I remember like that no one ever questioned my sexuality or I wasn't bullied because of it. I, that, that didn't happen. But it was more that I was quite inward. Mm-hmm. I was very shy i kept myself to myself i did have a couple of friends all girls uh <laughs> classic but no it wasn't an issue at school but i didn't shout about it either yeah i think that you're so right having that place that you could go where you could see people like you yeah like no wonder radio was so exciting because i suppose you could be yourself there it was and then right and then at power <laughs> fm literally all the djs were gay so i mean i did it was such an easy ride because um it was so normal from such an early age that I'm thinking back now, and I've not really thought about this for ages, it didn't even cross my mind because I was so around it that it would be a problem for people. Mm-hmm. It didn't, I don't think it even crossed my mind. And then you see stuff on television, which actually then was the only outlet that caused no internet. Mm-hmm. Or like, for instance, the Uganda show you mentioned. yeah. yeah. Because that blew your mind. It blew my mind because I was like, okay, this is... I think we made that show in 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I know I know that homophobia exists. But I've got to tell you, it just wasn't in my life because I was around, it was so normalised. Even from, you know, early, early doors. Yeah, the Uganda show was wild. So tell me a little bit about that. Actually, before, I want to know whether... Did you have to make a decision whether to come out publicly once you became like a public figure yeah well this is a sign of the times right so uh that even the fact that this conversation happened now is mad basically uh, it was a time like i joined radio one in like late really late 98 beginning of 99 and like i said i was mr bland on air like, you you learned nothing about me from bit from listening it sounded fine but i was just there and then I think it was someone from the press office said, like, we should probably should probably get you to come out. And I'm like, OK, because at that time and I understand why, because at that time it was really a time where the newspapers were outing people. Yeah, it was before this. But it was like Stephen Gately where it's like they would splash it on the front page of like he's gay like that was a thing but it was yeah i've got a friend that was in london's burning and she and it was going to be in like the you know like the 3 a.m section in the sun or something where it was like and she had to sort of have a very big conversation and then it ended up being a day where there was loads and loads of stuff and then it just she was like oh so then i had to do this massive interview that became about a paragraph (laughs) long so it's kind of a similar situation i did an interview yeah it was in 2000 i think and it was actually a lovely interview, but no one ever really said this to me, but the vibe was a bit, 
you do it before they do it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so you're in control. And then, but once again, that really went without incident. Um, and actually, I'm quite pleased that I did the interview because I, because I said what I wanted to say and it was all done really well. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was a, like this. It was a sit down chat, you know, but the article was really nice and exactly what I wanted to say. And I'd kind of thought at the time, I mean, even it sounds mad this now, but this was the situation at the time. Like, I'd rather have that than it being on the front page of the whatever and then and then and and you not know what they're going to say yeah it's on your terms isn't it right and that's exactly that it's taking control which we did and i was kind of i was glad to to do it you know Mm -hmm. but once again not any backlash i've got to say although it was a lot here's interesting thing and i thought about this obviously if i suddenly came out now it wouldn't be a problem but it was a lot harder then to get in touch maybe the maybe loads of people did have a problem with it but i wouldn't know about it because there was no twitter mm-hmm. no one could slag me off on blah 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 it just wasn't a thing and i think this is how long i've been on radio one you could text in just about mm-hmm. to the radio station and i think um i can hardly remember but i think there was a bit of abuse mm-hmm. but it wasn't terrible and i certainly don't get any now I think that um, this, this is quite a, um, a not, not a strange thing to confess to you, but I remember you coming out, and I yeah. remember being heartened by it. I remember yeah. thinking because I knew I wanted to be in this industry. You know, it yeah. ended up going in like a comedy route for me, which I absolutely love. But I knew that I wanted to do something that was like in broadcasting or a bit of acting yeah. or something like that. And the fact that you existed and had a normal life made yes. me go. Oh, okay. Well, his radio show isn't a gay radio show. I, I appreciate I'm doing this on a gay podcast, but I don't want yeah, you yeah. Know, everything that I do isn't about my sexuality. And it was sort of heartening to go, oh, he's on a massive station, the biggest in the country. Everyone listens to it. Everyone tunes in and no one cares. They're still listening that's to it. him because he's just and That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted from it. Because oh, even though this is a gay podcast and I'm we're openly gay, um, it's not about, it's not first and foremost about our sexuality. Mm-hmm. And actually a lot of stuff that you saw then, not, that's fine, but that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't super gay or, yeah. do you know what I mean? I, I, I was just kind of a normal bloke that just happened to be gay on the radio. And that's what I kind of said in the interview. And that's still the case now. That was what I wanted to get across mm-hmm. from it. And I'm glad that you said that because that was exactly the plan. <laughs> but that, then it worked. I just wanted to be honest, you yeah. know, and, and, and it's it's true. And I've, I've not really ever encountered a, a problem with it. But you're right. It was it was a good thing to do because similar area. Yeah, someone from um, Portsmouth went. <laughs> I'm not saying you just did it for me, but no, someone in Portsmouth went. It was just went, for you. Thank God. But, but also, like, you know... Not only the being gay, but also I was just sat in my bedroom. I don't know any. I didn't know anyone in the industry. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, like often it's like, oh yeah, my father used to do this. I didn't have any of that. No, it, me literally, there's no, there's no history of anything like what I do in my family at all. Yeah, same. Uh, so I was, yeah, same. So we kind of started from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened with the Uganda show? So for people that haven't seen it, 
I, I, mm. I've watched it, but you basically found out the world's worst place to be gay. Did someone come to you with that idea or did you decide you wanted to create something like that? So um, it was um, Danny Cohen, who at the time was the head of BBC Three. Mm-hmm. And I was looking to do a few bits with them anyway. And then he rang me and I went in for a meeting with him. And he's like, this show we're going to do in Uganda, it was kind of just going to be a documentary and it's probably it was probably just going to be voiceover it wasn't going to it it, it, it wasn't didn't have a presenter attached right. to it and I was like and but he's like I, but I think it would benefit from somebody actually going there and, and doing it and seeing it for themselves mm-hmm. so I was like cool um and then I just watched hundreds of videos and read so much about the situation for people in Uganda and like I said it blew my mind and depressingly it's kind of it's not really changed in in some ways has got worse basically homosexuality prison you know you it's proper homophobia there Mm -hmm. like when I this is 2011 Mm -hmm. you would open the newspaper and it you would your face would be printed like you were a criminal so it would say your name it would have a picture of your face it and also it would often give your address and people would uh, this is just for being gay and uh people because the the whole vibe of the place is so homophobic people would turn up at your house and it was just dangerous mm-hmm. and you would this, this was in a daily newspaper um so yeah an undescribable situation that i just didn't know was happening to that level mm-hmm. the, and it was a time where there was a bill being passed but there was another thing as well so basically let's say uh your mum let's say my mum knows that i'm gay if she doesn't tell the police then she could also go to jail i couldn't get my head around it because actually on the surface of it in the country when i went there i met some lovely lovely people I just didn't tell them I was gay. Mm-hmm. As soon as you did, it changed everything. And uh, uh, you probably remember, I mean, it was a long time ago now, but I went into the, uh, I went into a radio station where they were having um, a, a, a phone in about it. And basically every caller was like, yeah, all well, gay should be killed. Mm-hmm. Or they should be, um, have therapy, it's conversion therapy. And at one point in the documentary, just just to show how ridiculous it was, we met up with a guy who basically beat me with a chicken and said that I wouldn't be gay anymore. What the fuck? And then there was another... We didn't have time to do it, but there was another one where um, we were going to have to go to some hill in, on some farm and there would be a cow there and some mystical person would transfer the gayness into the cow so the cow would be gay but i wouldn't anymore and i was even then i was just like this is insane and then the big thing in the show was um the the main guy who was trying to pass this law in the ugandan parliament because it was it called the kill the gays bill yeah yeah that that was uh, not the official name for it but but that's that's what what people people called called it it, yeah basically yeah and the the main guy who was trying to get this bill passed we went to also, at the time, I didn't realise that this is quite dangerous. dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. Anyway, so we turned up at the Parliament Building, and they were like, "Well, we want to do it inside," and we were like, "Let's not do it inside because it's really hard to escape." Um, 
Like, it was proper... You know when you see, like, frontline journalists, you're like, I wouldn't do that. For a minute, that was me. But at the time, I didn't realise. And I was naive. So they were like, well, the parliament people were like, um, yeah, we'll do it inside uh, the parliament building. And I was like, yeah, all right then. And the producer was like, absolutely not, because there's nowhere to go. Um, so we said that we would do it outside on the lawns outside and we were gonna uh, we were interviewing him we told him it's for this bbc documentary and um he he was basically ranting on about i don't believe that anyone was born gay and blah blah blah. and then i just say well i was and uh he at that point ripped his mic off said that he'd been hoodwinked by the bbc and Mm -hmm. that this wasn't the plan and i was like well this is the way it is. He then ordered the police to come after us. We had to literally get in the car and speed it out. We had um, a fixer with us who's the guy that kind of arranges everything. And somehow the parliament or the people there had got hold of the fixer's number and was saying, where are they? Where are they? So fast forward, we because we were like, well, they're going to find out the hotel that we're staying in and this is not going to play out well. So ridiculous but we kind of had an emergency meeting back at the hotel and we all actually stayed just in one room for about 12 hours just in case um and they did turn up at the hotel and and the hotel just thankfully just said well we don't know where they are now at the time i didn't realize it was only really when you're in the moment you're like it doesn't feel actually when he ripped the mic off and the, they were calling and they were like, let's send the police around, I was like, okay, shit. I didn't realise that this was going to happen. Um, but even then, you kind of... And I kind of get now when... You know when you see, like, war... Not the same, but when you see, like, people in a war zone, it's just an adrenaline thing. You don't realise at the time, like, fucking hell, this is potentially scary. really scary. And it's only when they sent me the rushes of the tapes back and I was like, what the hell did you do that for? Um... But I'm glad that I did, and I mean, even to the point where the they were they were going to seize the recording. They want they were like, "Well, this is not going to be shown." So we had to send the tape on a flight with somebody else uh, from Kampala to Heathrow, but they just literally had them in their bag, and it was someone that wasn't even part of the filming team because we just thought they were going to take them and they would never be shown. And the flight, it wasn't, they made sure that they didn't get these tapes. So uh, this is insane. So we thought, well, the authorities will be checking if it's like British people, Mm -hmm. they'll be checking the bags of every single flight between Kampala and Heathrow. So the flight was indirect. I think it went, this is how, so I think it went Kampala to like, let's say Berlin and then Berlin to London so that they didn't suspect and they couldn't seize the tapes. The whole thing, I was only there, I think I was only there five or six days and it was the most eye-opening thing I've ever experienced in my life. A a terrifying situation. And the people there, and still are, um, were absolutely living in fear. Mm. And it's all very well going, well, just leave the country. That's not possible. Mm. You know, you you are in it and it's it's a terrible situation. And I, I just couldn't, because of what we were saying earlier, My, there was nothing like that. I, I, I was so um, oblivious to it, even in my own life, really. Mm-hmm. I saw that it happened on the television, but it never affected me. I was so lucky. 
But just to go and do that program was out of this world. And how did that affect you? Like, what does that do to your soul? I was shell-shocked for so long afterwards. Yeah. And, and it was, like I said, when I watched the tapes, they sent me the video and I was in tears watching mm. it. But at the time, when I saw all the stuff of me going to the parliament building, part of me was like, it wasn't me. I was like, no, why are you doing that? Stop. Um, but I'm glad that we did because it was a... A, a, it was a good documentary. Yeah, it was. It needed to be done. Yeah, but I just met so many lovely people there, gay people who were just living in fear for their lives. And yeah, there were a couple of very hairy moments. Um, do you still think about it now? Yeah, I do. And weirdly, it's um, along with Strictly Come Dancing is the thing that people still mention to me most. It kind of crops up all the time, and it was a decade ago. But that shows what an impact it had. Right, so the other day I was at a service station and there was a girl there and she was like, oh, that's show in Uganda. And I was like, wow, <laughs> still being yeah. mentioned. Then um, uh, one of my best mates has got a boyfriend who is Hungarian and um, they've only been together maybe uh, maybe a year and a half. And um, because he's Hungarian, never heard me on the radio. My friend's like, but he knows you from that show that you did in Uganda. And I'm like, because they showed it in schools in Hungary. Wow. <laughs> you get people from all over the world. Because I think much to the woes of the Ugandan government, it was shown everywhere. Yeah. I tell you what was also interesting was YouTube was around, but it wasn't massive like now. It wasn't. And all the guys that we interviewed for the show were so terrified of being on camera. They were like, well, where is this going to go? Where will this be seen? Because I'm probably going to be killed or have real problems in my life. People mm -hmm. will turn up and throw things at me. And it really is that. Yeah. People will, like, stone you. And we said, oh, it's just going to be in the UK on BBC. And they were fine with that. But, like, in a YouTube world now, I don't know. I don't think they would have been as that happy and and it is I, I think it is on youtube now but at the time that just shows you how terrified they were yeah it really and they does. had and a lot of them checked and they were like oh if it's only on in the uk then that's fine now that obviously wouldn't happen now no totally that's a lot of obviously it's so important those stories are told and so important that people you know i'm very much in my media bubble that's why i'm glad i did it because we are in a media bubble but just to have have that experience really opened my eyes to so much and it was an odd thing because like I said on the surface it's actually not a particularly dangerous place to be actually like I've been to uh, I did this Comet Relief desert trek years ago with um, Derma O'Leary and Lorraine Kelly and we, w we landed in Nairobi and they were like do not leave the hotel because Nairobi it um can be very dangerous mm -hmm. kampala and uganda is not like that actually you can walk around freely it's not a dangerous place to be particularly but um unless you're gay but unless you're gay and it was everywhere like it was in the newspaper it was on the television we went to this um i think that they had to cut it from the show because it was we, we got so much footage but a lot of it is um a lot of american evangelists go there uh, to the churches and kind of preach what they preach, which is a dangerous thing as well. We yeah. we spent the whole day at this kind of, it was almost like uh, like a Trump style rally, yeah. you know, uh, where Fire basically it was that. Yeah, and it was a lot of these kind of guys that had come over from Atlanta, 
and we're just preaching hate. And a lot of them, because of their views, were absolutely lapping it up. And it was terrifying to watch. Yeah, I bet. It's just one of those things that you see on television and you go, I can't get my head around that. And then you're actually in it. And you think, God, this is a seven hour flight away from London. Yeah. Right? It's not that far. No, it's and, really not. Um, and it's so, it's so, so different. I, I was really pleased to, to, to be able to do that because... Um, like I said, I think it, it, it brought up a lot of issues that needed to be said and talked about. Yeah, and it's brilliant that you did. It's one of the things that I'm most proud of, actually. Mm. Because once again, it's out of my comfort zone, you know. it's um, I like doing those things that are out of my comfort zone every now and again. Mm-hmm. That's the same reason I did Strictly. I knew I wouldn't be any good at it, but what an experience to say that you've done it. Yes, and totally. I, I, honestly, I mean, obviously, Uganda... It is what it is. It was. I, it wasn't fun, but I wanted to see it with my. I just wanted to broaden my mind mm-hmm. and to have that experience and to actually be able to go right. I can do that, and also I'm pleased that that documentary went out and it said what it said. Yeah, totally. And, but then I do. I do like to do things that are out of my comfort zone a little sometimes. Like I said with Strictly, just to that juggernaut of a show. Yeah. I just wanted to see how it works and to have the experience of it that is one of the best things i've ever done in terms of confidence as well really because yeah i know it's that it's a weird thing to say because it's a it's a dancing show on the telly but because you are quite shy and because you know that you're not only good on it any good at it but you're willing to learn it's made everything else in a public way so much easier because you know that 15 million people are watching it yeah that's you know lot. when they go and our next couple are scott and joanne and you're doing that wave and then they play a little vt and then you're on and nothing is more terrifying actually than that it was terrifying but i wanted to do it because i knew or i thought that after doing that then me hosting like an award show or me getting up and doing a speech about my life in radio or whatever which used to t- uh, actually keep me awake at night would be easy and it is so what's next so what's the next thing oh, you need God, to do i don't know i don't know i um for children in need a few i hate heights but then i decided to jump off a jump off the orbit uh abseiling that's don't know why i did quite that terrifying. but once again it scared me um I do like to do things that are my comfort zone. The Strictly thing, honestly, it's exactly how you imagine it to be. It is. Everyone is so lovely. It's so mad how they put that show together. It's just super camp, lovely, warm. It's like a big warm hug with sequins. It's just the best. I would do that again in a heartbeat. It was so, even if you're crap... It's so much fun. Yeah, it does look a lot of fun. And I haven't met one person, I've not met one person that's done it and and didn't like it. I mean, when you're in it, it's weird because it's like, it's all you think about. And it's so big. Everyone watches it. It's massive. Everyone watches it and they still watch it. And um, yeah, I was just glad to have that experience because my dance partner, Joanne, was lovely. Everyone on the show is lovely. I actually... um, Obviously, I got I got knocked out. Probably, I mean, I lasted six weeks. God knows how. <laughs> God knows how. I mean, I, I kind of went down the comedy route. It's like here, here he is in a crab costume, yeah. but it but it did help. But then they asked me to do the tour, 
what a blast that was. Just three weeks of going around the country dressed as a crab, generally. But, like, who thought I would be on at the O2? What the hell? It's just me from Eastleigh. I, mean, I turned up, we were, like, in Sheffield Arena, and they're like, oh, enjoy the show. And I'm like, what the fuck? I'm, I'm doing... This is like being a pop star, or what I imagine it to be like. You're all in a bus. Everyone has the catering at a certain time. And then you go and do the show. And I'm like, this is what being in the theatre's like, or what being a pop star's like. And I fucking loved it it was so good one of the best things i've ever done I love and when that. the and when the so the show finishes in so i kind of got knocked out at halloween and then there's obviously christmas but then the tour is like the end of january for th it's intense it's like maybe 35 shows in three weeks mm -hmm. but i've never had so much fun no it sounds amazing no <laughs> scott thank you so much for um for coming on the podcast. Now, the question that I ask everyone at the end of the show is because um, we get we get a lot of people writing asking for advice, and I want to know what advice, like you know, that sort of eight-year-old boy or the fifteen-year-old boy that was you know at hospital radio and then literally turning up and knocking on the door at Power FM saying, "Can I have a job, please?" Like you know, you now yeah. you're on Radio One, you host the chart show, but if you had to give that boy a bit of advice about sort of what's to come, what would you say? I would say, like, just stop worrying about everything. I was, I have spent so much of my young life worrying about things that I didn't need to worry about. Especially, um, I, I think I do this less now, but I'm definitely still guilty of it. Worrying too much about what other people think of you. Mm -hmm. Worrying too much about upsetting other people. Um, because you can't please everybody. I would just say, don't worry about stuff or stop worrying about what other people think because actually, a lot of the time, they're not even thinking about it. You're you're over-worrying this, I would say. And I've only really re re realised this quite recently where it's just like, and I'm a lot happier for it. Scott, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to me. I've really enjoyed this, you know, so thank you. This was, no, thank you. Oh, what a fantastic episode that was. I loved chatting to Scott. What a great guy he is. Huge thanks for listening. Huge thanks for coming along and being part of this of, of this podcast. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I hope you have a great week and I'll be back with you next week with another episode. Take care. Mm -hmm.